This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debate. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guest on Off the Shelf is Bob Metzger. Bob leads the Washington, D.C. office of Rogers Joseph O'Donnell, law firm that specializes in government contract matters. Uh, Bob is a recognized subject matter expert and leader in cyber supply chain and related security matters. As a special government employee for the Department of Defense, Bob was on the Defense Science Board Task Force that produced a cyber supply chain report released in April of 2017. He is also co-author of the MITRE Delivered Uncompromised Report released in August of 2018, which has influenced a broad range of security initiatives for the Department of Defense and across government and civilian agencies. Bob, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you, Roger. I appreciate your having me on. Yeah, well, it's just... Um, this is uh, a ubiquitous topic, I guess. Like you can't turn around and like see something in the news like this year with the breaches and uh, solar winds and, you know, colonial pipeline, all those sort of things. And so I, th- I thought maybe we could level set things kind of a little bit and just talk about the nature of the threat that we do see in the papers and, and in particularly from a government uh, context. Well, you know, cybersecurity has been getting more attention for a number of years, but I can recall, you know, a few years ago at this uh, annual RSA conference that the supposed specialist would tell ourselves that we, we knew more than the year before, but it was what we knew was worse. But at that time, there was still a sense that, you know, cybersecurity, you know, as a constant threat or, or uh, condition of existence was was not something that really bothered much of industry or as much of government as it should. Well, you know, things have changed. I mean, cybersecurity is fundamental to the enterprise, whether it's uh, government or industry. And there's virtually no part of commerce or, and no part of government that hasn't um, experienced the unfortunate consequences of uh, porous defenses and insecure networks. So we've seen a seemingly endless string of events that are taken by hostile actors, whether they be uh, ransomware criminals or nation states. A couple of those have really gotten the attention of both uh, the government and the public. Uh, Solar winds uh, was very disturbing because of the sophistication of the attack, its potential uh, reach across a large number of enterprises, its targeted nature on certain companies and government uh, entities, and also because um, the sophistication that it showed and the apparent uh, fingerprints of the Russian security service but there are also some, you know, very severe ransomware attacks as has brought as brought home to the public that this applies to them, too. And I'm referring, of course, to Colonial Pipeline and to the JBS Meatpackers. Um, cybersecurity is not only everybody's business, it's everybody's problem. Uh, the threat is virtually ubiquitous. It continues to get worse. Adversaries are showing themselves to be highly skillful. They are agile um, in their maneuvers. They are innovative in their techniques. And all too often, our responses, whether they be legislative or bureaucratic, technical, you know, seem to fall behind the pace of the threat. That's a problem. Yeah, after that colonial pipeline, people, I mean, 
gas stations here in Northern Virginia were closed. And I can remember I was uh, I was on empty coming home from downtown, and I'm looking for that one gas station. Fortunately, that's the only problem I had in that regard. But you know, but to your point, the ransomware and the impact on just society can have on society in general, not just the company involved. And so. if it has impact on society in general, then this becomes not the domain of specialists but suddenly a matter of great public interest, if not anxiety. And that translates, of course, to a political imperative, as well as to, you know, a leadership imperative. So we've seen some of both consequences. The executive order that the the president put out um, certainly is, you know, remarkable in its sort of breadth and its uh, ambition. But there's also been a huge amount of attention uh, in Congress. And for the most part, I think it's fair to say that it's bipartisan attention. And now we have a situation where both the executive branch and I think the legislature are really seeking to have, you know, industry as well as the specialists. Uh, And of course, federal departments and agencies, you know, do more and do it faster. And suddenly, uh, you know, this is a very high priority for everyone. Now, the challenge is going to be matching the um, instructions, if you will, with accomplishment, because these remain very difficult subjects for almost any uh, organization involved. Right. Bob, can you give us sort of conceptually like how the government is sort of responding just in terms from, I was trying to think about it, whether, you know, organizationally, how the executive branch is structuring itself to respond regulatorily. So much has happened, Roger. It's not that the prior administration was indifferent to, to cyber. They weren't but they were not nearly as organized or coherent and they did not uh, commit, I think, the same level of resources, certainly for the civilian agency. So one thing that's happened that's very important is the establishment of the office of the national cyber director in the White House. Chris Inglis holds that post. And he is uh, attempting to bring some coherence to federal policy and practice. That's extremely important. Uh, We also have seen over the past several years, the, the elevation of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security uh, Agency, CISA, unit of the Department of Homeland Security. Um, They've gotten more people. They also have strong leadership in Jen Easterly. Uh, They are taking on more responsibilities. We've also seen increased uh, involvement of the NSA in working with CISA and the Department of Defense to give uh, instructions, warnings, and advisories. Uh, We have certainly seen in the executive order um, instructions that veer towards demands to all of the federal departments and agencies to do many big and difficult things that will take a long time and cost a lot of money to improve the security of departments and agencies. And all of these things necessarily have some consequence to companies. Certainly they present new business opportunity for the contractors who will be called on to help the federal government. But also we will see, I think, an increasing um, insistence that uh, defense contractors, critical infrastructure operators, and other suppliers to the government. They'll be expected to sort of play along and come along. Um, How you reconcile all these things so that they are, in fact, coherent, you know, as opposed to, you know, fractured and frustrating, uh, that's a great challenge. Can you, from your perspective, identify what you think are some of the key highlights from the executive order? Um, Sure. Um, The executive order is remarkable for uh, its detail, I suppose, its breadth and its depth. But let's kind of go back behind the scenes and understand why it's here. Um, I see it really as a response to SolarWinds. What SolarWinds told us is that there's no such thing as a trusted intermediary. 
in fact, that intermediaries, particularly software applications, can become you know, the means of delivery of hostile payloads across a very wide span of industry and government. And it's not just that the payload could be delivered. In the case of solar winds, it could be targeted. A command and control beacon-like apparatus could be installed, and it could enable an adversary, or did enable one, to conduct not only you know, reconnaissance, but move towards surveillance, and potentially from there to exfiltration. And of course, what worries everyone even still is that there are elements of solar winds lodged in the networks of federal departments and agencies, or commercial organizations where we don't know and really don't also know, you know what the limit is of how, of how dangerous the problem is. And so SolarWinds essentially was a gigantic wake-up call, I believe, to the federal government. It said that we have to look at all of our networks and information systems, and we really have to engineer them, re-engineer them to move away from perimeter defense towards zero trust architecture so that we are less dependent upon the hope that adversaries can be kept out of our network and more confident that unusual or unexpected behavior within a network will be detected and isolated. Now, the first part of, uh, of the executive order you know, starts in a sense with the obvious, and that is to improve for federal agencies the detection and the reporting of incidents so that there can be more rapid understanding of those incidents, more rapid dissemination of what is learned from them, and hopefully more rapid response. And at the risk of the incredibly obvious again, you know, if, if incident reporting is to be effective, it has to be done quick, it has to be done in an automated fashion, and you know, it has to include not just government, but the private sector. And getting all that accomplished, either within the government uh, sphere or outside to commerce generally, it's hard, very hard. Easier to say it that we should do it than it is to accomplish it. Yeah, and you know what, Bob, we're already up on the first break. And I guess when we come back, you know, I'm going to just ask you if there are any other key features um, with regard to the executive order. And then I thought maybe we could turn to DOD specifically, some of its initiatives and CMMC. Okay? Okay, sure. Great. So my guest today is Bob Metzger. He is, leads the Washington, D.C. office of Rogers Joseph O'Donnell. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Bob Metzger. He leads the Washington, D.C. office of Rogers Joseph O'Donnell and is a recognized uh, subject matter expert and leader in cyber supply chain and related security matters and Bob, uh, when we took the break, we're talking a little bit about the executive order. Um, so I got sort of two part thing. You mentioned zero trust architecture in the context of the executive order and what that means. And maybe we could talk a little bit, you could explain a little bit more to the audience what that is exactly. And then also just any other highlights from the executive order. And then we can turn to CMMC and, and some other wonderful things at DOD. <laughs> okay. So historically, for federal departments and agencies, as well as for, for many commercial enterprises. You know, the focus has been to erect the electronic uh, equivalent of a perimeter wall and to do your best to look at who is trying to get in and to decide whether to let them in. But for most of us, once we get into our local network, we have, you know, relatively speaking, free reign to run around it and do what we wish. Well, the problem with that approach is that adversaries have proven too skillful at getting inside the perimeter. Advanced persistent threats, as they are known, um, include the ability to essentially place malware into a network and then to activate it at a time of the choosing of the adversary. And so if the adversary is already inside your network, 
protecting the perimeters around it are it's not going to do you any good. So what zero trust architecture does, Roger, is essentially to remove all aspects of trust. What it essentially says is that I'm not going to assume that anyone has the privilege to be here or the access to the information they seek or the right to use it in a particular way just because you were authenticated. I'm actually going to look at what you do with the information, where you seek to get it, how you seek to employ it, whether you intend to transmit it. I'm gonna look at your activity within the network and compare it to policies or practices and expectations. I'm also going to give great increase to, in attention to endpoint detection and response. I wanna look at not only what you do within my network, but who you are and how you attempt to communicate me, with me. And that in, extends not only to workstations, but to iPads and to smartphones as well. Now, if fully employed, zero trust architecture is a very elaborate combination of policies and procedures, technology and resources, you know, plans and expense. But there are, are many ways in which to get to the zero trust outcome. You can start with particular tools and techniques, and you can work towards the uh, successful implementation. We are definitely going to see that happen because the executive order commands it, but maybe more important because it's really the only effective way to successfully defend against the attacks that you see at the perimeter, as well as the ones that you won't see that already are there. And if I'm right that SolarWinds has left deposits of malware in federal departments uh, and agencies in their networks, well, you want a zero trust type capability so that you can identify very rapidly and isolate um, and minimize the, the damage of attacks once they occur within your network rather than if they're attempted outside it. Uh, yeah, that just sounds so complex. Will artificial intelligence play a role in this? Yes, absolutely. And one of the things we, we have to realize is that, you know, the human resource element of cybersecurity is very limited. There are only so many people that know how to do this. And there's so much information that is generated um, in the oversight administration assessment and monitoring of a network. And if you rely upon people to do it, not only could you get wrong answers and will you be limited by the you know, short number of people available and their working hours, you're gonna be overwhelmed by information. So it is of crucial significance for cyber as well as supply chain that we find ways to automate the, the gathering of information, its aggregation and analysis, and the development of instructions or warnings or recommended actions. And all of that calls upon big data and of course, artificial intelligence. Now the great challenge is that while you need that kind of high performance computing and artificial intelligence to give you actionable information, you know, within um, a useful time, you don't want to take humans out of the loop entirely. Because if you do, you can get in terrible mistakes that are made by your well-intentioned artificial intelligence. And so a great challenge for security designers is to find kind of the right place for humans uh, on the loop and also to, to find ways so that the amount of decision-making and information presented to humans can be worked with, you know, in a realistic time. And in Zero Trust, I should emphasize this, Zero Trust runs on a whole lot of policies. Who has the right to see what? Right. Who has the right to do what? Who has the right to get what? 
And, and those policies inevitably are going to prompt, you know, uh, a stop sign, a tra- uh, an exclusion. And, and so you have to have a way for someone to review that because one of the great issues in zero trust for federal departments or agencies or professional service organizations such as yours or law firms such as mine is going to be, well, this is a great idea in practice, but if I run this thing and it prevents me from actually getting any work done, then I'm not going to run this thing. And we have to solve that. It's not going to be easy. Well, and humans would be the ones sort of, well, the humans would be developing the policies that provide for access, right? Right. So, and, and all policies are subject to exceptions. And, yeah. you know, all, all rules are subject to variation. And, you know, if you set up a completely automated rule-driven system, well, it will be perfect in theory, but probably agonizing in practice. And so the, the object here is not just to have, you know, a bulletproof, ironclad system that you can't work in, but a system that is, you know, agile and successful in its defenses that does not impair your ability to produce or even innovate. Yeah. So I, I have one more question about the executive order. Um, and it's just about the software bill of materials, um, which I've heard a lot of people talk about. Sure. Do you have, can you explain yeah, what that of, is? I and, do. Uh, you know, software bill of materials is, is just kind of a visible piece of a very complex problem. The executive order is remarkable in how it treats software assurance or software supply chain security. What it recognizes at the risk again of the obvious time six is that everything runs on software. Everything we do is run on software. Even the best hardware today is hard is software driven. And as we are moving towards the internet of things where sensors are producing data and enabling physical devices, there's even more software that is controlling our life. Well, you know, if software is kind of running the show, then it becomes very important to know not only what is in the software, that's the purpose of a software bill of materials, but how it was prepared and what, how it was tested and whether, you know, it was developed with adequate security and really, you know, who it's from. You know, software is not, not something which sort of gets shrink-wrapped, is then finished and never changed, quite to the contrary. You know, software is constantly evolving, and the community that builds software includes resources from all around the world. Even some of the most sophisticated software that we use today employs a great deal of code from open sources that has been generated over time. And so we talk about software bill of materials as though you can, you know, attach to a given device a bill of materials that will show each of the key elements, where it's from, and what you know about it. And that is part of it. That's great. But software assurance as a whole is a, you know, bigger and more complex problem, as is recognized by the executive order. But, you know, the executive order is, is somewhere between remarkable and astonishing on software assurance because it not only says do we need, that we need better software assurance, check, I agree, but it goes on to a whole list of particular methods and details about how to do that. What does that tell me? Well, that tells me that people really want this done. And second, that they're going to at least start by, you know, putting out some markers. I think software bill of materials are really important. But, you know, software bill of materials kind of, to be effective, they sort of depend on what you know about what you've got. And so if you're trying to create a bill of materials today for software that's been developed and improved over the last seven years, there's going to be significant areas where you aren't going to know enough to have much in that bill of materials. So I like to see SBOMs as kind of focusing forward to where we are telling people that are developing new software that they need to prepare them. And we need to also collect that kind of information as well in uh, a fashion where the data is machine readable and where we can use SBOMs in an automated fashion. We can't create mountains of information that people don't have time to review or can't right. understand. That's going to be a lot of data 
as well, right? I mean, so there may be applications Which there. Which you have to secure. Right, right. Right. I mean, every new form of data that you create presents its own security problem. Suppose that I told you that I have a magical way to aggregate, you know, threat information in real time from <laughs> the operators of critical infrastructure. We'd like to have that. Right. But if I had that, well, suddenly it becomes, you know, target A1 for adversary, Absolutely. you know, one, two, three. <laughs> and so, you know, the dynamic kind of never ends. I think that your listeners probably know this, but cybersecurity is definitely a growth field. It's not peripheral. And the executive order tells us to the credit of this administration that it would rather go big and go long and go fast and find that it's hard to do than sort of wait and suffer. And right. I agree with that. Yeah. And Bob, we, I guess we'll have to start on CMMC in well, the next segment. And okay? I only say this about, you know, compared to what we've discussed, CMMC is significant, <laughs> but it is yeah. hardly, you know, critical. I mean, the defense right. of critical infrastructure, the fundamental security of federal networks and information systems, these things really count. And CMMC is significant because of the impacts that it has upon defense industry suppliers and potentially civilian contractors. But, you know, in the grand scheme of things, not, not that significant. Right. Well, we'll still talk about it. How about that? <laughs> okay. Sure. Sure. Well, so we'll take our break right now. My guest today is Bob Metzger. He is he leads the Washington D.C. office of Rogers Joseph O'Donnell, and he focuses on cyber supply chain and related security matters. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Bob Metzger. Bob leads the Washington D.C. office of Rogers Joseph O'Donnell firm specializing in government contracts. He is uh, recognized as a subject matter leader in cyber supply chain related matters. He's one of the co-authors of the MITRE Delivered Uncompromised report released in August 2018. And we're talking all all matters cyber and supply chain. And uh, Bob, so as promised, <laughs> we're going to talk about CMMC. So I guess, first of all, just uh, what's the status of it? And you know, and other related... Uh... Well, it's in a de facto suspense. There is um, an executive steering group within the Department of Defense that is looking uh, very carefully, not only at issues that arose from the rulemaking last fall, but also some of the bigger questions about how to make CMMC work and ultimately how to improve the security of the defense industrial base against uh, exfiltration or theft of its valuable technical information and other forms of controlled unclassified information. So you mentioned the, the MITRE report, and this is where, you know, I can either take, you know, credit or blame or both because they are, you know, two sides of the same veritable, veritable coin. Of course they so are. In, it's, that's Washington, D.C. <laughs> right. So, so in the MITRE deliver and compromise report, you know, we, we made a, an observation that was fairly obvious, it seemed to me, which is that we had been trusting to defense contractors to provide adequate security, relying upon a NIST special publication. And we sort of asked them, if you take this contract, then you're kind of telling us that you're, you're doing it. Well, what we found out is that they weren't doing it very well because the pace of exfiltration and the value of information stolen continued. So we said, well, we can't, you know, continue to rely on this trust-based system. We need to have, you know, some mechanism for assessment. And so what we suggested is that uh, something called a security integrity score be assigned by some uh, private organization or institution that would then give objective means for defense or other civilian agencies to understand the security of who they were buying from. Well, you know, with many changes and, and alterations, this uh, contributed to what is now CMMC. 
So at its core, you know, CMMC to me is a very sound idea. But there's a difference between the core it is sound and all of the apparatus and infrastructure that may surround it in the inevitable, you know, maturing um, of things. So, you know, the core of CMMC says, look, it really is important for companies with controlled unclassified information to protect it. And it is important that there be an assessment so that companies know that somebody's actually going to look and that they're going to be um, evaluated in order to, to show that they have the security that the government has a right to expect. Now, you know, what has um, gone less than right here is that the scope originally was, you know, too many layers of security, five maturity levels, and too big a scope of coverage. So, you know, the thought was we we're going to cover 300,000 companies at, you know, five levels of security. And uh, we're, in order to do that, I mean, we're going to have to create literally an army of assessors, and that's hard to do and expensive. So there's been a lot of concerns about, you know, the feasibility of CMMC, about um, the breadth, the affordability. And, of course, those all translate into some anxiety as to whether it will be successful. So what I think is happening now is that the Department of Defense is looking at how to rationalize and make sense out of this ambition. And the fact that it may be too big and too complex and have issues of ambiguity or frustration doesn't mean that it's a bad idea. It means that we have to make fixes, and some of those may, may be consequential. Now, you know, what I have recommended for some time um, are a few things. Instead of having five layers of maturity that we're going to evaluate, I would focus on, on just one, and that is the, the central core of the de defense industrial base, which works with controlled technical information and export controlled information. Those are the types of CUI that I think are most significant to DOD. Those are people where I really do want to protect that information. I really do need to know if it has been compromised because that will affect my mission capability. So rather than deal with hundreds of thousands of companies who may have federal contract information, I'm going to focus on what is, you know, CMMC level three. Now, I also know that there's a small number of companies from whom we expect much higher security. Those were CMMC level four and five. I still expect that security, but I don't need CMMC to do it. I may use other means you know, to get that security accomplished. So instead of focusing on 300,000 companies with maybe a couple hundred who are subject to extraordinarily demanding requirements, I'm going to focus on, say, you know, 15 to 20,000 in the middle. And I'm also going to be thinking of two other concepts, which are a little bit presently alien to the CMMC environment. One is that not all forms of CUI are equal. You know, the way it's written now is that we're supposed to protect, you know, every category and subcategory of CUI as is established in the registry from the National Archives and Records Administration. Well, I get the concept, but in too many areas, you know, concepts at the time of execution don't work well. So we got to be a little more practical. So, you know, the Department of Defense is responsible for a couple of the categories of, of CUI. And the ones that matter most are controlled technical information of military and space significance and export controlled information. So I would focus on protecting that. And then when I look within that industrial base of people that use such information, do I treat all of them equally? Well, I really don't have to, do I? Because there are going to be some companies who do work that is more important, more sensitive, more urgent, or more attractive to adversaries. So instead of saying, I'm gonna come out and audit, you know, 220,000 of you against level three, as if all of you are the same. And I'm going to look to see how well you protect every form of information. My thinking is that you would focus upon, you know, those who have information of the greatest sensitivity, which is of the greatest interest, 
to adversaries and where the loss of its confidentiality or the loss of its availability would have the greatest impact upon the department or other related activities. And if you apply that approach, you can start to, to rationalize you know, what is required and you can start to scale back from the extreme, the infrastructure apparatus or ecosystem that needs to be created to do it. Now, I'm not sure what's gonna come out of this DOD review. I think that we're going to find out something relatively soon. I do not expect DOD to abandon CMMC. A bunch of trade associations, three of the leading ones, just yesterday urged uh, the Deputy Secretary Hicks, you know, to stay the course and make it better. Uh, that's what I think will happen. But, you know, we'll see some significant changes and people should be, you know, alert to development developments over the next several months. Yeah, I was going to ask you when you saw the timing of some of this, the decision points for decisions. Well, you know, over the past several months, uh, DOD has been remarkably quiet. So for the time being, uh, at least, um, the responsibility for CMMC as a DOD initiative, you know, resides with Jesse Salazar, who's the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Industrial Policy. And he has testified before Congress carefully. Uh, and what he said there is that, you know, we're concerned about the clarity of the regulations. We're concerned about the integrity of the cybersecurity accreditation body. And we're concerned about the impacts to small business. Well, you can take each of those things and kind of break them out into some of the constituent pieces and a lot can get done. Now, one of the problems that DOD has, Roger, is a leadership deficit. There is no undersecretary of defense for acquisition and sustainment. There is no assistant secretary of defense for acquisition. And the, what was, you know, the CISO for acquisition, Katie Arrington, you know, she's on leave. And so one of the problems that DOD has, frankly, is sort of not only coming up with recommendations among a forest of possibilities, but also seeing that somebody can make a decision and effectuate it. So it's not just that we are, you know, short decision makers and critical posts, but in addition to deciding, we need leadership to see that these new initiatives are accomplished. So that complicates things. Uh, DOD is clearly under some encouragement, even pressure, from um, the CMMC stakeholders, including the leading, some leading trading, trade associations, to start to tell us what you're doing. You know, listen to us and talk to us. Because for some months, neither of those things has happened, and that has proven to be not just frustrating, but the real hazard is that some companies are saying, well, if DOD is silent, this isn't going to happen, so I don't have to do anything. And other companies are saying, well, let's do X, Y, Z, whereas what they really should do if they were informed is one, two, three. And neither of those outcomes are good. So it's time for DOD to start to you know, share the plans and listen to industry, in my view. Yeah, you know, it's kind of interesting when you describe CMMC and you know the scope of it. I just started thinking about just sort of the pattern, the, the, the idea of, of developing requirements and at the department in particular, like where we want the like right. AAA plus solution, right? That scope to the, where, whereas focusing on the art of the possible would get you, you know, probably where you need to go, but because you've scoped it so large, it's, 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 well, it's, it's fascinating because we've all heard about scope creep endlessly, and we think that applies to, you know, weapon systems or solutions, but it also applies to even security objectives. I mean, you know, CMMC at its core is pretty simple. And at the next layer or two of, of, of expression, it's, you know, not that complicated, but if you take every aspect of CMMC and then you build it out, you know, to or beyond its logical 
you know, it's logical extension. Well, all of a sudden you can have something that is not just unwieldy or imponderable, but bordering on the impossible. And I right. think that's part of the, of these problems. You know, we have that rulemaking that's out there. You know, the rule went uh, effective, what, uh, I think November 30th of last year. And, and so we haven't gotten any uh, final rule. In fact, I don't think we're, we're going to get one because I think DOD is looking at sort of two sets of problems. One is how to improve the rule within the frame that was set by the rulemaking. And then the other is um, different things to do that are outside the rule that will be important to the overall uh, approach and outcome of CMMC. So my own expectation is that there'll be enough important changes to the strategy and structure that they're not going to be able to come up with a final rule. Rather, I would expect that, you know, we're going to see another interim rule come out. Now, I'm hopeful that we will see these things um, as early as November. But in the nature of such things, you know, complicated issues in an absence of leadership, you know, get hard to decide. We're waiting for a GAO report to CMMC to come out pretty soon. That could have an effect. Congress is getting frustrated. They will have an effect. So I don't know exactly when all this is going to shake out, but I hope it will happen this fall. Right. And we're up on the break, Bob. And when we come back, we'll, and we can talk about the requirements overall a little bit more and rationalizing them or just, uh, you know, what companies need to think about and even maybe a little bit just, uh, you know, the strategies for improving resilience, that sort of thing. My guest today is Bob Metzger. He leads the Washington, D.C. office of Roger Joseph O'Donnell, law firm specializing in government contracts matters. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. My guest today is Bob Metzger. He leads the Washington, D.C. office of Rogers Joseph O'Donnell, law firm focusing on government contracts matters. Bob is a recognized leader in cyber supply chain and related security matters, a thought leader. And, you know, uh, one of his uh, efforts, he was a co-author of the MITRE Deliver on Compromise Report released in August 2018. And, uh, and, so, Bob, this session, there's just multiple different things we can continue to talk about. Uh, you know, like there's so much here. You know, I'm going to have to have you back on the show and do part two. But just quickly talk about the NIST standard um, and, and NIST in general and its sure. role. So first, you know, I, I have great admiration for NIST and they've made a gigantic contribution over time. But, boy, they really have been, you know, put on the spot or on the burner by the executive order. Because the executive order has all of these rapid uh, requirements involving new standards and policies, process and possibilities. And it's hard to see anything in the executive order that doesn't point first at NIST and tell them to do this with that hard subject faster than you thought you could. And I think they're doing a, a good job. So there's a, a couple things that we want to focus on at NIST for uh, cyber and, and supply chain immediately. Um, you know, the first is the special publication 171 which is intended uh, for commercial organizations. That's sort of the, you know, the baseline of what you're supposed to do to protect against your network security against exfiltration of information. You could say in some respects that it's oversimplified, and some might even say that it is obsolescent, uh, hasn't really been revised substantively, substantively for a number of years, but I don't think that it's going to change in the near term, nor should it. Because whether it is you know, perfect or merely good, uh, it's at least a foundation that is well-known, widely understood, and I think it would be a mistake to start to impose upon you know, industry things that are, are much different. Even if they might be better, that would be a disruptive change. Now, CMMC takes another 20 practices and policies and adds those on top 
of 171. Those things are, are focused on documentation of policy and process as well as upon demonstration of maturity. I think those things are good. Now let's go on. There's a couple of other publications that to me really count at this. One is revision five to special publication 853. That's the one that essentially sets the controls and enhancements for federal departments and agencies. It has much, much, much more detail and particularity than does 171. But revision five has two things that are really important for industry to look at. One is it has much improved treatment of supply chain issues, its own chapter, I think. And similarly, it has much improvement of, of privacy. And while we've been talking about information security in order to prevent adversaries from getting controlled technical information, we also have to recognize that an effective privacy program isn't effective without information security. So you gotta bear those things in mind at the same time. And then the other one that matters a great deal, especially for the executive order, is special publication 800-161. That you know, already has been imposed upon federal agencies and is, is used by them to help with their supply chain. But it, it, NIST has just issued a, a draft revision one to it, which I think has some very important principles on supply chain assurance. And these two are things that, leading, that, that responsible companies ought to, ought to start to look at, and certainly federal departments and agencies start, ought to start to consider. NIST will remain you know, at, at the center of our efforts. Um, even though there are other uh, standards organizations and those who set practices such as ISO, you know, NIST has earned, um, a re earned uh, acceptance of and respect for its products. And this is, I think, an important point. It really is important to have standards that are useful, not just for government, but for industry. And if we were to talk about supply chain, one of our problems there is that we don't yet have anything that's really like 171. 171, Roger, is what is intended for commercial organizations. It says, here's what I expect you to do to protect government information or your own information. But we don't have anything quite like that that is you know, workable and focused on commercial organizations for supply chain security. And maybe on our next call, we might want to want to talk about how supply chain security is different and what it yeah. would call on, you know, what kind of risks it's dealing with threats and, and what that requires you know, of industry and government. And, and of course, there's some overlap, but there are many areas that are very distinct and, and important. So we got time for a couple quick questions and there's no short answers. I, I get that, but just, you know, from your sense, it, it seems to me and part of the executive order and all that's going on is, you know, and what DOD is doing is that a review of across government of all these different regimes and standards and that sort of thing would to, to sort of rationalize or harmonize, you know, to, to make sure we have useful, you know, protocols uh, would be a good thing. And then, you know, just touch on well, that. Definitely, briefly. definitely, maybe. Definitely, right. maybe. Okay. <laughs> I mean, the reason I say definitely, maybe is that, you know, like, like every, you know, person outside the government, I'm constantly asking for reconciliation and uh, alignment, you know, of different supply chain and cyber standards so that, you know, companies, you know, don't face, you know, some impenetrable combination of inconsistent obligations, many of which are hard to understand. And I agree with that. Of course, you know, we would like to have, you know, a perfect understanding of a highly symmetrical, coherent, uh, sensibly organized set of requirements that apply not just to DOD contractors, but to everyone, whoever, whatever part of the federal government should deal with. I think that would be great. And we need to avoid at least, you know, the worst problems that can be caused by inconsistent standards. 
But, you know, as I said at the outset, you know, our adversaries take advantage of our slow process. Yes. And time and time again, while we are debating the best way to accomplish something, they come up with the next level of threat and execute the next attack. And so, you know, perfect is, again, the enemy of the good. And while it is an important objective for all of the decision makers to make our federal measures more coherent, and I think Chris Inglis at the National Cyber Directorate is trying to do just that, you know, let's not wait until we get it all perfect because that wait will be forever and will be too badly damaged while we get there. Now, you know, at the same time, you know, you might be wondering what are, what's the smart move for companies during this period of change, flux and uncertainty. You read my mind. So, I mean, what is the smart move? Well, some would say, well, they're not making me do anything right now. They're thinking about what they want me to do, so I'll do nothing. I strongly counsel against that because as we started at the outset, Roger, you know, the threat, the vulnerability and the impact of threats are all worse today, I think, than a year ago and worse than a year than a year before that. So if you think that your organization is somehow impervious to all the bad things that lead to these cyber initiatives, you could not be more wrong. Every organization is vulnerable. If you're a small school district or a hospital anywhere, if you're a commercial organization, it can, it will, and maybe already has happened to you. Everybody says that endlessly, but at a certain point, you need to read the headlines and realize that your name, your company could be there next. So, I mean, to me, you want to take prudent measures if you are an organization that does business with the government. And for a start, you ought to focus on 171, because if you are taking measures that improve your ability to demonstrate satisfaction with 171, that's almost certainly going to help you operationally and as a business. And it's almost certainly going to put you in good stead if, when, and whether, to what extent assessment comes. But you know, beyond that, we can get a little bit more particular. We can say, I want to look at the information that is most important in my business. I want to look at the information that is most important to my customers. I want to think about my systems, such as manufacturing systems that are most consequential to my continuity of operations and to my dependability in the supply chain. I want to look at those things. Those are the highest impact things. And I want to protect that key information and protect those key systems. And I'm going to focus my you know, money and technical resources on that stuff first. And, you know, that's, that's an outcome, you know, an outcome driven approach. Well, you know, it may sound unusual, but it actually isn't because in effect, in the, in the executive order, there's essentially the same language, which says now departments and agencies, while you're striving to do these 100 things that will take you the next five years, why don't you start with looking at what your most critical information oh, yeah. processes and protect that. Prior- and so the smart move is protect your, your key assets, protect right. the things that make you valuable or necessary to your customers or to the public. Right, prioritize, right. And Bob, I wanna thank you. Great information, great analysis. I really appreciate it. And we will do part two, I promise, okay? Thank you. All right, thanks. I wanna thank my guest today, Bob Metzger. He leads the Washington DC office of Rogers Joseph O'Donnell, the law firm specializing in government contract matters. And Bob, as you have heard, is, the, is a subject matter expert and leader in cyber supply chain and related security matters. And Bob, thanks again so much. Uh, this is Roger Walder, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.
To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the Sleep Number Bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my Sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.